The Recruitment Mentors community is now completely open for you to join. It's the meeting point for recruitment professionals who want to take their development and growth into their own hands. Whether you're starting out your career or five years into it, our mission is to empower you to accelerate your development with the most successful, collective, current and responsive teachings from outside of your four walls. You can now join the community for just £39 per month by going directly to our website at recruitmentmentors.com. That's recruitmentmentors.com. Your new mentors are waiting to meet you. Welcome to the Recruitment Mentors podcast. My name is Hisham Azuz. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Jeanette Harvey, who is the founder and CEO of Harper & Gray. Harper & Gray is a recent recruitment business that Jeanette has launched, and their mission as a company is to partner with companies on their journey to create more diverse, equitable, and inclusive organizations. Before that, Jeanette launched her own business. Um, Before she launched her own business, she worked for the S3 Group for over a decade, initially starting with their Huxley Banking brand, which she built from the ground up, um, with her lattes being spent on their real staffing brand, which is one of the biggest life science recruitment brands globally. Jeanette consistently led the brand to double-digit growth and along the way has been recognized as one of the top 100 influential staffing leaders in North America by SIA. Jeanette, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Been really looking forward to this one. And uh, where we always like to start is, in your opinion, what characteristics and traits do you think make up a highly successful recruitment consultant? Yeah, so no substitute for work ethic. I'm sure that probably mm-hmm. comes up a lot, but recruitment is hard work and there's there's no uh, there's no getting around that. But I think really a willingness and desire to connect with people on a human level. So that um, ability to build rapport, um, to actually be interested in people, to um, do what you say you're going to do. I think there's a big mm-hmm. piece around um, personal brand that that kind of that 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 goes right alongside that. Um, so, so being sort of fiercely protective of the service that you are going to be offering both your clients and, and candidates, because that's based, that's the collateral that you take with you as you build your career. Mm, really interesting. So I'm really excited to sort of unpack your journey. I've been seeing a lot of the things that you've been sharing over the last sort of six or so months. And so just for people listening, for, for context, you really built your recruitment career, which you spent over 10 years at the S3 Group right? Um, As you were sharing with me before, um, spent a year in the UK, but never on UK markets. You've always been focused on the American markets. And then in 2005, you actually took your career to the States and co-founded the S3 group over there. And then whilst your time there, you ended up obviously managing and leading multiple brands. So I'm really excited to unpack that. And I guess where I always like to start because there's always a story or two there, but like, how how would you describe your first year in recruitment? What what was that like? Yeah, so I, I've been with the S3 group for 15 years, 
and I, I joined there in, in 2005. And so it was quite interesting that first year in recruitment because it was based uh, thousands of miles away from my uh, client base. I, um, I built the US banking business from London. Um, so that was uh, some pretty antisocial hours, as you can <laughs> imagine, and a few sacrifices that came alongside that. But it was really, really exciting because back in 2005, there really weren't any UK recruitment companies to speak of that were in, in the US. I mean, S3 really cracked that, that market. And um, so it was, it was exciting to have a blank slate and uh, really have, you know, the... Okay, it was the states. It felt like the world was was our oyster at the time, and um, yeah, there's something to be said for um, you know building a reputation and a and a brand organically. Uh, so mm. although we had made a lot of traction with with some big players in the UK that didn't necessarily translate to uh, doing business with them stateside. So it was really a lot of business development, uh, building out a really solid uh, candidate niche um, and um, and and really, uh, really, really putting in the, the work um, kind of long term to 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 sort of uh, build and, and establish the business so on so you t- mentioned it a bit there but whenever we have sort of um recruitment professionals from the s3 brand on here i'm just always interested to hear people's opinions or the way that they would describe the business because there's so many stories of the s3 group and what sort of was achieved within that business? Like when you was, before you obviously moved to the, the US, like what what did that business sort of feel like? Like what was the culture like? How would you describe the culture when you was working there in, in the UK out of interest? Yeah, and, and the culture of S3 has, without a shadow of a doubt, really evolved. Uh, back in 2005, I would say <laughs> the word <laughs> that comes to mind is pretty hardcore. And really? So, you know, it was high, high levels of discipline. And it was, you know, very, it was, it was kind of long hours. And, you know, it, it was a KPI driven business. I'll be honest with you, for me, I'm extremely uh, kind of self-disciplined anyway. And, you know, any standards that were sort of imposed on me, I've always exceeded that anyway. So So it wasn't really, it wasn't an issue. And I quite like the idea of a simple blueprint. So coming into the business and kind of knowing if you do the following activities, right, to a high standard, you'll be successful, that there's there's something quite reassuring in that. Um, So I really worked in a very candidate driven way. And uh, yeah, it was it was amazing. I mean, for me, within my first my first uh, nine months, I uh, I hit S3 top rookie and wow. I got flown on a private jet to the opening game of the World Cup. So oh that God. really that set the scene for my <laughs> uh, career with S3 and uh, it became very difficult to top that. Let's say yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so so do, you mentioned that I'm just I'm just curious, Jeanette. You mentioned that you're someone that holds yourself to 
quite high standards anyway. Where where's that come from? Out of interest, have you always been that way, or how come? Uh, yeah, I am. I, I've always been that way. I, I grew up with very little, and so mm. I think when you grow up with very little, that definitely impacts your mindset. And uh, I've had to work extremely hard for everything that I've had, um, but I've I never took for granted the option or the the ability to be able to do that I was grateful for the opportunity and um, I made the most of it yeah fair okay so a couple of things and then we'll sort of segue into you actually going over to this date so I would say I think a lot more of it's happening now but before COVID I would say most aggressive or progressive uh, recruitment businesses would have had sort of US on on their business plan in terms yeah. of diversifying their client base and, and these types of things. Um, so I guess I just wanted to ask you, there'll be people listening to this that may be early on in their journey in building out a US market for their business, et cetera. So just curious to hear from you, like what were some of the things that I guess you had to maybe learn quite quickly the hard way that you had to sort of adapt to the nuances of dealing with the US market. I don't know, does anything come up there that sort of sticks in mind where if you had someone new join in your team or one of your teams where you'd say, this is sort of how the US do business here? Yeah. I guess you've already done it to be fair. So you haven't got much to compare to the UK, but I don't know, I guess what comes up for you that maybe slightly different that some of us that have always served the UK market or Europe markets may not understand or would have to learn the hard way. Yeah, I think going into the UK market, uh, going into the US market from the UK market, there's obviously such a vast difference in the size yeah. of the markets. It's huge. And you can get really, uh, that that could, could almost be quite overwhelming. And where I've seen other people come and, uh, and try to replicate what we did um, and not be successful, often it's been a lack of focus. So it has mm. been, you know, trying to go at too much um, and uh, and really kind of feeling the effects of the overwhelm of exactly how big that market is. I think it's important to go in on on a tight niche and to, to really understand what your proposition is and, uh, you know, to, to sort of build a, build a brand, build a candidate community, um, and, um, and, and, and really expand and, and grow through that. Um, sometimes it can feel quite counterintuitive to go quite narrow, but I think in this instance, it's, it's, it's a really smart way to approach it. Sure. So ju just on this, because I'm sure you've done a lot of this as you were growing the brands and the teams, but would just be interested to get your take on this. Obviously, you'll be aware that I'd I'd like to think that a lot of recruitment companies have this idea of sort of inch wide, mile deep and niche, right? So I guess, like from your perspective and your lens, like what, how niche is niche enough, if you get what I mean? Like when you say you have to have a real focus on niche, like how, for people listening, like, what does that actually mean? Is it, am I just doing one job title, one sort of seniority in one sector? Or I don't know, how do you sort of communicate and feel about what is is niche enough? Yeah, you, you need to, obviously it's, it depends entirely on the sector um, mm. and, uh, and, and really the domain that you're looking at. So you, you need to, to 
be able to take stock of how, what the candidate demand looks like in in that um, sure. marketplace. But obviously, start you know the smaller that you can you can start, it's easier to kind of exp- expand the parameters than to to kind of go the the opposite direction. But I think that you really at minimum looking at a specific practice area, right? Mm. So. If you're doing life sciences, for example, you're probably going to want to pick pharma or medical device, for example, uh, yeah. and then quality or regulatory mm. within that. And that, that's got to at least be, that's, that's got to be the, your minimum level of kind of niching down and you may well target specific job titles Even within server, yeah. that. Okay, that's that's good to know. Quite practical, but I know that will help a lot of people listen to this. So final question, I guess, on sort of early days. I'm always interested to hear sort of answer to this. It seems like you had a real positive start, but if you were able to go back to um, 2005 and give Jeanette any advice, what would you say to her out of interest? Uh, to enjoy the uh, <laughs> enjoy the time that it, you are an individual con- a contributor, um, really? you know it, it was uh, it was probably one of the most enjoyable times of my career. I love leadership, and I spent a long time in leadership. Um, but there's something to be said for being able to see that direct correlation between. Um, you know, I can change the outcome of my business through what I do today, right? So mm. the actual gratification um, is uh, is 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 quite is quite immediate, and so yeah, I think uh, I think enjoying that um, while while I could, that's that's probably what I'd go back and tell myself. Yeah, really interesting. So so just just to paint a picture for everyone, then. So obviously. I guess the first thing that I'd be interested because in, obviously you took your recruitment career to the States in 2005, right? Um, so not long after you joined the S3 group in 2004. So I guess my first question really, obviously you, you mentioned there the high standards and with that would have been sort of internal competition. Like why, it seemed like, again, you got off to a really great start, rookie year within nine months, et cetera, but like, why was Jeanette able to get that opportunity to take the S3 group to North America and, and, and start that? Like, why was you trusted with that opportunity out of interest? Why, why you are not the person sitting next to you? Well, number one, that's what I was hired to do. Okay. Um, <laughs> that out. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, realistically, I'm, I'm sure the company wouldn't have invested in actually taking me and getting me a visa yeah. if I hadn't come in and, and shown um, what I would be capable of, of doing on, on the market. I think recruitment, there's no way of getting around this. It's a performance environment. And, you know, it's not <laughs> there's there's no hiding from performance mm. and the in the early 
point, certainly from a leadership perspective, I definitely look at attitudes and inputs and just ability to to kind of push yourself and uh, and get outside your comfort zone and to make the difficult phone calls and things like that. Um, and I think it was it was probably the same for for my leaders when when I was uh, you know first in the business I was not afraid to make the difficult uh, calls I wasn't afraid to push myself out of my comfort zone I was always willing to learn I had a good attitude and those things alongside performance are you know really what you would look for when starting out uh, a new venture a new a new business yeah, no, I love that. And so just just so we will understand and for those listening, so when you so where did you then base yourself when you went to America? I was in New York. Okay, so you went to New York, cool. So just could you just would you mind just painting a picture of the actual the business that you were starting? Like how many of you went over? Was it just yourself? Like what did the actual business look like that you were starting in New York at that stage? Yeah, so the business, the business in New York, there were five of us that moved over in in this sort of initial team, and um, my my responsibility was to build out the banking technology business, right. and you know that was that was that was interesting. We were kind of a perm only business for really the first couple of years that that we were out there, and I built a a really high value a really high value business effectively so um we spent a lot of time really deciding and picking um quite thoughtful niches that would um not only generate um sustainable revenue for us but would also open up the doors to the broader client as well. So mm. I think there's a huge benefit to picking, um, you know, the 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 sort of verticals where you, the client really really needs your help. Right? Is not only uh, can does that mean you can command uh, quite high fees, but it also means that the client you know, has a different level of respect for you if you're able to deliver in um, in a vertical that is is so difficult. difficult that means yeah. that it's quite easy to get access to to kind of the broader jobs and to to kind of penetrate the clients from there. And and so that's kind of exactly what we did. And within uh, twelve to eighteen months. The team in in New York, the banking technology team, it became the most profitable perm team globally in S3. And wow. it, it sort of continued on that track for the remainder of the, the years that I kind of led it. So it just really went from strength to strength. So so on that, a real popular, a really popular sort of area that a lot of recruiters message me that they and I'm sure you found this in your career when leading teams and things but a lot of recruiters message me always asking for me to ask people like yourself for advice practical tips on on the client side mm-hmm. so I, I guess the, the question I have for you to sort of try and encourage you to share some of the things that you've learned in your career is during that period then it seemed like you were really strategic which is I think a lot of people probably even missed that part um but like what was what ended up being like your most effective way to 
win business and, and, and build these relationships that then meant that this was the, ended up being the most profitable part of the, the S3 group globally? Like what, I don't know, what comes up for you? What I really works exactly for you? I mean, it's exactly that. It's a two-step thing. It's, it's going in with something that is really valuable for the client. So mm. what a lot of the mistakes that a lot of people make is their outreach is literally knocking on the door and saying, hi, I'm, I'm, you know, Mr. Recruiter, uh, you know, <laughs> do you have any jobs, you know, and, yeah. and it's nothing more, you know, it's not more sophisticated than that. And the, the reality is that there's you and another hundred recruitment companies that are doing that. And so for me, the outreach to clients is never about me. It's never about mm-hmm. will you work with me. It's always a lead in with the value that I can provide to a client. And so if you the benefit of really niching down is from an industry perspective, you understand the trends, you understand where there is, where it's candidate short. And when it's candidate short, then you can take your candidate to market and feel confident that you're that the client is actually going to be interested in what you have to say because you're going to solve a problem for them. And so Mm. taking that approach is is really the way to open the door with a client. And then when you open the door with the client, you stand and fall on your service, right? So you need to make sure that you um, you know, you, you do what you say you're going to do. So not mm. only are you kind of delivering on that particular search on, on that, that particular job and, and, you know, possibly the candidate that they were originally interested in, but that's how you then develop the relationship across other verticals. And, and then it becomes much more, um, you know, lead sales through service. Yeah, no, I really like the way that, you put that. So, so as, as you shared with us, that became a really profitable part of the, the business globally. So then when, by that point, was you then more on a sort of in the leadership capacity than you were a contributor capacity or just um, help me out on that sort of journey? When did you then start getting involved with leading other brands? Like when did the sort of real leadership uh, piece come into it? Yeah, so probably for the first three years with the company, I did a hybrid role. So um, individual contributor and and then sort of individual contributor and and manager. A lot of people find that quite a difficult job um, to focus on their own production and hire, train and and team. I personally found it to be one of the easier leadership gigs because – I think people really underestimate the power of role modeling, of being able to just show people how to do the job. Uh, it's actually easier than telling people how to do the job. <laughs> so I, I I quite enjoyed that. Um, but then after about three years, we were really in high growth mode. I mean, to give you an idea, we started out, the, as I said, the kind of the five of us that ended up being kind of two of us um, that, that kind of stayed with the business long term. And so take we grew that business from, you know, no people to 500 people by the time that I left. And so... Wow. That was, uh, you know, just a, a ton of a ton of growth during that time. Um, yeah. So, okay, that really paints a picture. Thank you. So I guess there's a couple of things that 
there'll be a lot of people that listen to this that really aspire to go into leadership. So I just want to ask you a couple of questions on that. And I think you alluded to it straight away because I'm sure you've helped people overcome some of those challenges. Like I've a sort of common phrase that I've heard be chucked around in the industry is that a sort of billing man- uh, being a billing manager is one of the hardest roles in the industry, right? But like you said, actually sort of looking back or now when you then end up leading teams where you was just in the leadership role rather than leading by example, that's one of the, the great positives you have when being in a billing manager. But what I always hear is, is the sort of management of the self-management of time always tends to like, that's what I keep hearing when I speak to billing managers. It's how much time should I spend with my team without the detriment of my own performance? And I'm sure you've helped people with this in your career. So I guess if I ask you, I don't know, what sort of um, self-management systems or time management systems did you live by when you was, when you was a billing manager that really worked for you or you've helped other people with, does anything come up for you on that? Yeah, I think you have to work in a really green way when you are a billing manager. And um, so for me, it was always about your job is to get people to be able to to do this job very well um, without, you know, autonomously. Mm. And so where you will see, I think a lot of people really struggle with this is they're not really setting their people up to do the job autonomously. Like they're jumping in and doing stuff Mm. for them. Whereas for me, it was kind of a, a simple process of, you know, breaking down you know, what are all the different elements and components of this job? And, um, you know, you train people on it. And when you train, don't just train one person, train more, you know, train, train everyone, even if that means you're giving people kind of a refresher, it's, it's training people, it's them seeing you do it. So, you, you know, why would I ever be taking a job spec, for example, without having someone on my team listen in? If I know that I know how to take a brilliant job spec, why am I going to do that by myself and then, um, you know, not use that it. as okay, an opportunity yeah. for, for training? And then the same thing, right, is, you know, you've seen me do it and now I'm going to support you and give you feedback on yours. And and really what you're, what you're doing as, as time goes by is you're, you're checking the competency boxes for these people. So over time, there's, there's sort of less and less, um, less and less support that you need to give. And if you, if you know, you've trained someone really well, then you can also use them as the role model and, and, you know, as, as uh, support for, for kind of the broader team. So I think it's all about do it properly uh, with the first people that you onboard um, work really green. And actually those initial people, they'll be super competent too. And that, that's how you, that's how you grow a team effectively. And um, you don't do it alone. Got it. Okay. So a few sort of couple of things on leadership that I'd love to ask you. One is obviously, as you said, you scaled um, this this business to obviously around 500 people by the time that you left. Now that involved obviously multiple brands. It wasn't then just the, obviously the banking uh, brand that you essentially own your stripes in, let's say, for lack of a better phrase. But mm-hmm. I, I've got an, a question for you. Like how how did you approach leading teams that you'd never recruited for? What was that experience like? Because I think people listening to this are probably people that 
or aspirational, maybe in the leadership, maybe open to taking head of director positions in other companies, but that may be in for a different sector. So I think it's quite interesting channeling. I've had a couple of people ask me about it to ask people on on this show. So what, what's been your experience in leading teams that you never actually recruited in yourself out of interest? I mean, that's the difference between having a big business, right? Is that if you mm. want to have a big business, then I mean, it's ludicrous to think that you are going to have recruited in in every single festival. <laughs> so uh, you, you have to have processes and structures and um, structures to be able to uh, apply a really good strategy and um, and structures around execution. And if you've got, if you know how to evaluate, is this a good market? It's the same set of questions, right? It's the same set of mm-hmm. questions that you're going to apply to any market to sort of understand, is this a good market? What's the dynamics of that market? Is it candidate driven? Is it job driven? What's the, what's the client, what should the client strategy look like? What should the candidate strategy look like? All of those di- different things there. That's about having, having the right uh, processes and the right questions. And so you don't need to know a business intimately. You just need to know what you need to to know in order to be able to 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 make smart decisions. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying there is focus on those things that you have experience in rather than trying to sort of be perceived as the expert in that vertical or whatever. Double down on the things that have yeah have will show up in the verticals and markets that you have managed or recruited in in the past and then yeah okay I mean yeah I mean at at a point at that stage your expertise is leading recruitment Mm. businesses to growth and so the the point isn't actually about how detailed your market knowledge is of each of those different verticals I mean when you look at uh some some pretty uh senior C-level executives within some of the, the large recruitment companies, including the current CEO of S3, no recruitment experience at all. So you came from completely different industries. So the further that you go up the chain, actually, it's it's your leadership expertise, it's your strategic thinking, it's your approach to risk management, it's your ability to manage a PL, it's you know, your uh people strategy those are the things that become important and mm. the the uh the, the the ins and outs of you know a recruitment market are less important and i appreciate that it's iterative right depends where you're at but if people can get their head in the game of you know i need to start to add value to the recruitment process without intimately knowing these markets if I want to to continue to to kind of rise up the you know through through the ranks then I think that's that's a good a good way to start thinking to to get you to that point yeah got it really really well put um I have to ask you this because you've you've been involved in leading so many people and I think it's something that a lot of managers and, and leaders think about in recruitment but what what's what's been your journey in like getting the best out of your teams like when i say to you Jeanette how like how have you got the best out of your teams i know there will be nuances to particular individuals and teams but what what comes up for you there like what typically has sort of really helped you get the best out of your teams out of interest 
Yeah, I think leading with empathy is really important. Sometimes can feel a little bit cliche, but I think it, it is important. And leading with empathy, it doesn't mean that you don't have high standards. It doesn't mean that you don't hold people accountable. I'm big on accountability, accountability for myself and accountability for my teams. And we've always had very high standards. But if those things are in place, then the way that you lead, motivate, empower, coach. So I I lean heavily on on coaching uh, to get the best out of people. Uh, You know, those things, that's really kind of the the method to get to to that sort of destination. And so I think kind of treating people with um, treating people with respect and um and kind of supporting them meeting them where they are is is really important and giving really really clear expectations so that's not one to be overlooked when I support other leaders uh, you know and and they're struggling to get the best out of others when I really do a bit of a deep dive there's just disconnect and expectations so you know mm. the manager wants one thing um but the other the, you know the, the the employee just isn't isn't clear right there's just there's not that that there's not crystal clear clarity of expectations and so that's something for me is that I never would have people in my team not know what I expected of them because that's where you you know everything flows back from from that really yeah that's a really good point I'd love to know if you were to if we were to take a random recruitment business and and we were to say to the consultants of a five to fifteen person team like, do, do you know exactly what you need to do this month that your sort of team or leadership requires of you or expects from you? How many people would be able to answer that in a really crystal clear way? I need to pull, do this. Like, that would be really interesting, actually. I think that's a really... Been very sort of interesting. It would be a very interesting exercise. And I think that percentage would be extremely low. Yeah. 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 I think that'd be really interesting. So what I wanted to ask you next then is what what's been your journey like what's been your journey with imposter syndrome because i feel like you've you went on this journey and i you strike me as someone that really took in your stride you have high standards you've continued to work on yourself you don't strike me as someone that wasn't willing to ask for help like i don't know what's been your journey in overcoming or having or even experiencing imposter syndrome as you sort of continue to lead more people and we're doing more things that a lot more first. I don't know what's been your journey yeah. with that. I think anyone who says that they don't have imposter syndrome is either a liar or they're not sitting at different tables because the reality is for me, imposter syndrome definitely shows up when you do those first, as you said. So mm. actually, the more ambitious you are, the more you put yourself in situations where you're in different rooms and you're mm. you're sitting at different tables. And of course, you have those moments where you're like, oh, I, don't, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> and I've had those moments before. Uh, actually, over the last few years, I've had quite a uh, quite a transformative journey with imposter syndrome where I realized that 
you know, you can only be an imposter if you're trying to show up as someone other than yourself. And showing up authentically as me and really leaning into what I bring to the table and who I am um, has has really meant for me that that's kind of that's sort of gone away because I'm not trying I'm not trying to anticipate what people need from me I'm not trying to anticipate like who I should be and just you know trying to gloss over that extra kind of 10% and just show up authentically and quite fearlessly as me and it, it, I think it translates better as well like people people buy into authenticity mm, no yeah I really like the way that you put that and I guess part of that then which I'll be interested to hear your sort of journey with a part for you to really understand how to authentically lean into you being you and what you bring to the table requires definitely a, a good sense of self-awareness and understanding what you like what's been your journey with sort of cultivating self-awareness and understanding what does what value do I bring in this in this boardroom and in this context and yeah, what's been your journey of cultivating self-awareness out of interest? I'm going to be honest with you. I actually think imposter syndrome is um, probably linked with high self-awareness. So it, mm. it's not people who are, people don't have imposter syndrome who are not self-aware. Um, when you've got imposter syndrome, uh, it's because you're actually very aware of, of where you are and what your experience mm. is and you think quite critically about yourself. The people that are completely oblivious and have a total different self-perception, they don't have imposter syndrome. They're the people mm -hmm. that sit in the rooms and and kind of make a bit of an idiot of themselves right because they think they're much be better than they are and and their ego comes through so um yeah like for me I'm I'm I've always been incredibly self-aware um it's more actually about um I, I think for a lot of people who are trying to conquer this is about conquering perfectionism conquering mm. being too self-critical on themselves like those those are the things that, that you need to focus in on yeah, no, interesting. So I feel like we've, um, this has been quite positive so far. So obviously, as we know, recruitment comes with highs and lows. So like, talk to me about if when I say to you, what was like the sort of toughest part of that journey in America and work for the S3 group, like what, what comes up for you and like what helped you work through it? Um, yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I've had a really great, I had a great experience really? at S3 <laughs> and I'm quite resilient, but, um, you know, I, I moved to Chicago in 2011 and set up that, that region for S3. And that, there was a little bit of that, that was, it was, it was very under-resourced and, you know, there wasn't a ton of support. And, and I think the company's perspective where you did it before for us, you do it again. <laughs> so they, they kind of would divert in a lot of resources to other areas. And I, I sort of felt a little bit like, you know, <laughs> just because I can do it doesn't mean that you shouldn't support me better. And there was something to be said for you know, I just, I, I felt like I'd done this already in New York and then start in all over again. And you yeah. definitely have to check your energy level for, you know, 
starting something new and starting something yeah. new again because it is like there's only so many times I think that we can go through that same journey and um and so fortunately the the Midwest became uh, you know a hugely profitable uh, region for S3 but it was definitely tough kind of starting starting again and not working with very much yeah okay fair enough so what um so I'm I'm really excited to go through the sort of early stages of you starting your own recruitment business. But I guess just a couple of things that could translate to also part of your mission with your own business. But I have I have to obviously speak to you about this, and that's sort of women in recruitment, right? So I think from what I can see from your brand, you do a really great job of um talking about this as, as part of your brand mm-hmm. so let why don't I share with you just some of the things that I've sort of learned from sitting down with people like yourself so what what I've come to find is that when I speak to um women in recruitment it seems like and I think hopefully I feel like this this could have really changed and shifted over the last sort of year or so but I've felt that when I speak to women who have ended up in the leadership position they've um, found it really difficult to get there because along the way they would have had to make some really difficult decisions on the crossroads of starting a family and then that sort of pegging them back with their career and finding it back hard to get to the sort of senior position where they work really hard to. So that seems to be a real common challenge for women, which I feel like could potentially impact more women in leadership and senior positions. I'd like to think the sort of flexibility and remoteness that's come with the past sort of 18 months or so could hopefully really impact that. Um, And then the other part is then I think which you spoke really well about whenever I've spoken to um, women in recruitment as well, one of the common things that I feel women talk more about than um, I think men is, is that sort of um, navigating with imposter syndrome and maybe not being as willing to put their hand up for that promotion or think that they're deserving of that promotion. Um, Whereas men probably still have those same feelings, but more willing to put their hand up go yeah I'll do that even though they're not the finished article or whatever so I guess I don't know what what's been like you're obviously a great story this but a lot of people sort of in their own recruitment business don't have female role models that they can look up to and go wow Jeanette's achieved this in my business that's sort of someone that I'd really like to aspire to they actually have to become that role that be driven by becoming that role model themselves so I don't know what how I don't know how do you feel about sort of women in leadership and senior positions in recruitment is that something that is going in the right direction like what more work do you think we have to do there and what are some of the reasons why um women are probably um underrepresented at that level yeah i think there's a lot um that you kind of say there uh you know first of all clearly there is a lot of work to be done i mean just saw a set of statistics recently, um, you know, for, for kind of US staffing firms and the number of women in, in kind of senior executive roles was uh, was quite pitiful, right? So even when we're talking about making progress, yeah, we're making steps forward, but the numbers still don't look very yeah. good. So so yes, there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, yes, there are still barriers in place for women who want to have a family and often Mm. that's just about how they're perceived and how their commitments perceived and people taking opportunities away from them because they're assuming rather than than can ask in so there's there's all of those things uh you know you talk about men 
um, you know, are they going to ask for promotions? I mean, when it, even something as simple as pay rises, men ask four times as often as women. So, you know, it stands to reason if you ask more, then you get more. And I think mm. exactly the same thing applies to to kind of promotions and and you know some some sort of gender bias um, and and gender specific behaviors kind of come in where women are far more likely to wait to be recognized or if they get told to you know we're going to work on this promotion for the next 12 months and they'll sit and they'll diligently work on it whereas I mean I've experienced this myself where you know men are lobbying for exceptions kind of left right and center (laughs) and if you don't if the organization itself doesn't hold firm to those same standards that's where this becomes really difficult right is is that if you're in a company that says you know we don't make any exceptions ever then it's a level playing field but if Mm. if that's not the case this culture of exceptions um really uh sets sets women up in particular i think for failure because we don't tend to generally not ask for exceptions and and we don't really do the whole self-promotion thing um so i think a few different things to kind of combat that one i think there's a lot more visibility and discussion around this now which is is definitely helping to to shine a light on on this and is is actually kind of helping uh, women to to navigate and self-manage different it's also helping leaders and and managers to kind of do the same thing too is is to kind of be be so much more aware and and in turn that means that there's more people are trying to be more equitable in how they're managing men and and women. Um, But then, you know, right alongside that, um, you know, you've, you've also, uh, you you kind of mentioned this mentoring and, and kind of role models. I think if, if women can understand it's a big world out there and it took me a while to realize this too you don't just have to look for role models in your own organization there's tons of places that you can get mentors and it doesn't always have to be a recruitment mentor you know one of my early mentors was someone in a completely different field and that was great because I got totally different perspective so I think just really surrounding yourself with positive role models uh, you know irrespective of the industry can also really help shape your thinking and and your own development yeah i love that so obviously this is part of the the puzzle but like obviously let's sort of talk about obviously that this is a big part of your mission with your own recruitment business now isn't it and helping organizations um with diversity equity inclusion so i guess so again, giving you context of what I've sort of sort of experienced from speaking to recruiters, this is what seems to be happening. Although there are, I feel like, more and more recruiters that are being really proactive. But the experience that I seem to get from recruiters is that when it comes to diversity, is that then they're not invited to the table with their clients on the actual topic of how can um, our business and employ um, more diverse talent and where recruiters are then sort of experiencing 
um, the diversity pieces, their clients are going, we now need to, we need to start seeing diverse shortlists and diverse candidates. Um, and because they've been nowhere near the conversation or even been invited to the table because they've never brought this conversation up or topic of conversation up, recruiters then turn around and going, how the hell do I do that? <laughs> how do I start attracting and communicating and building relationships with underrepresented um, uh, talent? So I guess for, like from your sort of journey and like where, where can recruiters start with their diversity journey? Like, I'm sure you will get this asked a lot. But like where, like I, I'm sure a lot of people listen to this. I personally feel like a lot of people genuinely do actually have the right intention. Yeah. Um, but actually don't know where to start. And sort of are also quite worried about standing on the wrong eggshells and asking, I don't know, there's obviously there's a lot of things, but I feel like a lot of people don't know where to start. Yeah. So I guess where would you encourage people to start if if their intention's there, which is probably one of the most important things, that in, their intent is the right thing rather than this mm-hmm. coming from a place of being a tick box exercise and just doing it to make one person happy. Yeah. Well, listen, I would go back to what I said at the beginning of this conversation, right? We're there to solve problems for our clients. So mm. if if people say, uh, I'm not invited to that conversation, well, why should you be, right? Um, you are there to solve your client's problem. And so if you're engaging properly with your client from the very beginning, you'll be asking them questions, right? So from a talent perspective, what are the top three priorities for you? What's most important for you? You'll be having those kind of conversations. And right off at the gate, the client's going to be saying, you know, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Because that, mm. that that's, that's the common challenge right now. And then you can have a conversation with, with clients and actually come up with, with kind of a solution together. So the first thing I would say is if people are finding themselves on the back end of that conversation, then you're probably not doing a good enough job in, mm. um, in, in really kind of finding out what's important to your clients early on in the process. And then secondly, you know, if a client does say, this is my priority, you're not, you know, as recruiters, we're not sort of there as order takers, right? So if ever you find yourself in a situation where it's just kind of a shopping list, like, go away, bring me that, then again, something's kind of gone wrong. So if you're in a space that you really understand, you should be able to tell the client what the demographic is like. You should be able to come up with solutions together um, to to kind of support that. And it might be that you shift in the conversation with the client. You're saying, listen, I can help you find diverse talent, but that means that we're taking away the speed element, right? Which is I'm completely fine with, but we we need to, to... you know, you, you want a client to work with you exclusively, right? Because going away and finding a diverse slate of candidates, that takes more time. That's not about just going into your database. It's exactly what you said. You're, you're kind of cultivating relationships. You go in that kind of extra mile. And so the, the sort of conversation and, and the, the tone of how that search is, is going to operate needs to be very different. Yeah. Okay. And then obviously as we come to, to the end here, Talk to us about obviously, yeah, like huge, huge step in starting your own recruitment business. Worked for one organization, as you said, for as we've discussed for 15 years. So I'm sure you obviously possessed a lot of confidence that you could do it. But at the same time, it's again stepping into that unknown. Like, well, how how has it been so far? Obviously, you started that journey in April this year. So how yeah. uh how has it been so far? 
Yeah, it's early days. So I, I started um, Harper and Gray, very purpose-led. So, you know, the idea really being able to address um, talent um, while putting diversity and inclusion first and kind of solving for that in a more holistic way. So supporting clients with diverse slates of candidates when it comes to hiring, helping them to develop equitable hiring processes um, and uh, and then actually also performance and executive coaching for their leadership teams who need to lead in a more in kind of inclusive and 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 kind of empowering way so sort of those that that kind of end-to-end is really um, looking at different ways through the the sort of talent chain and the talent process um, to to be able to solve for diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I feel you know very passionate about it. It's a topic and and um, an area that I feel I've got a lot of kind of expertise in now, and really being able to put my uh, experience all of my recruitment experience kind of into something that feels very mission-led uh you know feels great but it's been it's been four weeks it's been crazy busy <laughs> I've already signed up my first client and Amazing. you know ton of uh you know ton of interest and a ton of support for the the mission of the of the brand so i'm i'm excited to build something that also feels quite scalable to solve a very very large problem and um and yeah so 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 far so good and i'm sure that you know ask me in another 6 months <laughs> and you know there'll be a whole host of uh of other kind of emotions, but I'm, you know, I'm not new to building a business. I'm new to Mm. building my own business, but I I think there's some, some benefit to, to having done this for an organization because I, I know that it's, it takes time and I, I've got, I've got a ton of patience and, um, and kind of got the t-shirt I think for this. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm really excited to, to see it, see it grow from, Afar. So before we finish, I've just got a couple of sort of quick fire questions to ask you. Um, before I, but before I do that, just very quickly, um, I'd be silly not to ask you this, but as we come to the end here, obviously you've worked in the, the American market for some time now, like what's, what's your sort of overall feeling towards the American market? I mean, I'm definitely speaking to more and more UK based recruitment businesses that are continuing now with their plans to get into the US. Like, I don't know what's, sort of overall perspective of the US recruitment market is there still plenty of room for UK basically like really yeah there's plenty of room yeah okay so feeling positive yes definitely yeah nice so last couple of questions so the last couple of questions I have for you the first one is if if you could change the industry what would you improve I'd change people's approach to um, to to clients and and particularly to candidates. I think it's a human it's a, it's a business that is so heavily reliant upon human connection, and I don't always think that there is an appropriate level of of kind of respect and empathy for um, the the fact that changing jobs can sometimes be one of the biggest decisions that that a person will make and and I think that 
there's there's a lot more room for empathy and and uh, and a better experience for people sure um next one so what book have you read that's had the biggest impact on you do you think it could be if you don't read maybe audible podcast but what have you sort of consumed or read or whatever that's had a real impact on you do you think um no I do I look I, I I really enjoy reading um there's a couple actually that I've read recently um so Reboot is one of them and um Dare to Lead uh, Brene Brown is uh is the other one nice okay it's a bit of a less serious one this one before we finish so what what did you spend your first biggest commission paycheck on <laughs> I think play, paying off all my credit card debt. <laughs> <laughs> really? Lovely. <laughs> awesome. So look, final final question, Jeanette, and that's what what's the ultimate goal for your recruitment career? My ultimate goal is to build a business and a brand that I feel really proud of and that is actually making a real demonstrable difference in the world. Amazing. Jeanette, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And I'm excited to to see where your business goes. Thank you. Thank you. Well done on making it to the very end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I've done my very best to try and level up this podcast that will hopefully mean that you can take even more learnings from these conversations and apply it to your own recruitment career. Like always, if there are any particular topics that you would love me to cover with future guests, then please get in touch with me. The best place to reach me is on LinkedIn. Send me a message. What would you love me to cover with future guests? And if you have enjoyed the podcast, then it would be amazing if you could leave a honest review in your favorite podcast streaming platform. That will simply mean that we're able to reach more people with this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and don't forget to subscribe completely free on your favorite podcast streaming platforms and we'll be back next week with a new episode of the Recruitment Mentors Podcast.